just yeah, welcome everybody. We're going to get started. Just out of the heart of crimson. That's all. I'm John Haig. I uh, actually am the direct co-director of the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government with Larry Summers. Um, and up until December 31st, I was the executive dean of the school. But I am now officially a faculty member and have none of those administrative responsibilities, which is fantastic. Because I get to give uh, introductions to people like Ben uh, Heinemann as they get a box for, for, through the center. Um, just Ben is a senior fellow at the center. Um, he's a distinguished senior fellow at Harvard Law School's program on the legal profession. And governance. Uh, and corporate governance. And corporate governance. Uh, he is a... You know, we joked that Ben used to have like the resume that everybody wanted to have that went to Harvard Law School. Um, he's Harvard College, uh, Oxford University. I don't understand why you were at Oxford exactly. There's this award that people get sometimes. I guess. It's weird, yeah. Um, but it, uh, Yale Law School. It's now been it's now been superseded by the Schwartzman Scholars. Yeah, the Schwartzman Scholars. Um, he was GE's senior vice president, general counsel from 87 to 2003, then Senior Vice President for Law and Public Affairs from 2004 to 2005. Um, he has this great balance between the private sector um, and, the, and the public sector. He was in the federal government at the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare from 77 to 80, uh, as a, and he was the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, which in case you didn't know, that's the same position that our former Dean, David Elwood, held when he was at, uh, at uh, HEW, um, a lot of books, British Race Relations and the American Presidency, member of the American Law Institute. Uh, there, there's more I could go on for a while. He was had various uh, clerkships and a number of other pieces, but he really is here. We had him come and talk to some of our people, um, some of the people on the advisory council for the center, and he, I'll leave it to him to go into in much more detail, but it's not the traditional what you think of as corporate social responsibility. It's a much broader kind of thinking about the relationship of business in affecting public policy. And that's really what he's here to talk about today. Um, so thank you, Ben, for, for coming. John, thanks for the introduction. It's great to be here, and I'm, I'm uh, delighted. I, I am going to talk for about 30 or 35 minutes, but I'd love, as always, to have a conversation, which is uh, the most fun for me, and I hope uh, for you. But you can see what the topic is today. Uh, in our era of upheaval. Um, the purpose is to focus on the role, of, the role of business in shaping public policy from both a descriptive and enormous perspective. It's a vital dimension of corporate citizenship. I think that one of the reasons I'm here today is it's an important complement to the Kennedy School's primary focus on public decision makers. This is about sort of pub private folks messing around in public policy for good or for ill. And this has implications, I think, for professors here for the curriculum for students, uh, including career paths. So I'm going to come back to that. And I, I really think it's an important possibility, a job possibility for folks. And then also talk a little bit about what little I know about lessons from the business school that might be applicable uh, over here. Um, anyway, there are vital questions in the mixed economy, of course, of, on questions about where, what are public goods and about the line between the uh, public and the private sector. So the agenda is to talk a little bit about background, problems, and then focus on the subject matter, which goes first to corporate mission, then to the organization of public policy function of the company, then the substance, and then the process, um, and focusing on some reforms to fix the broken political culture that we all know exists. 
Um, on the background on business and society issues, I want to say some obvious things, but when you put them all together, it really shows you if you're sitting inside of a company, and I work for a company, and we won't talk about the recent years, I have nothing to do with it, I <laughs> plead innocent. Um, it was, at that point, it was a $220 billion in revenues, $25 billion in profits in 140 countries in every part of the economy. It was, at that point, the biggest market cap company in the, in the world for about the 15 years or 10 or 15 years that I was there. It was, a, it was a BM. But even, so we had a particular perspective, but it's typical, I think, of the big multinationals. So there's enormous scope of public policy affecting business, because public policy promotes economic growth and competition, protects workers, promotes the consumer welfare, and then promotes the public welfare and secures other public goods. I mean, those are the big, broad things that the uh, government does. And we've had a mixed economy, of course, for 150, 170 years all across uh, the Western economies. And of course, there are different levels of government. So I'm asking you to sit and think, if you're at the center of a corporation doing business in 140 countries, what does it look like? Then there are all the different levels of government that we all know, uh, local, state, provincial, regional, and global. There's endemic uncertainty. I think what people really don't understand if they aren't lawyers uh, is that there is, most law is enormously ambiguous. And so whether it's constitutional, legislative, regulatory, or court-made law, it's subject to interpretation to try to resolve the ambiguity. But you're dealing with asking the question of what is the law. It's not always a very easy answer. <clears throat> In addition to the, that uncertainty, there's endemic flux um, because the law and policy are constantly being revised and reformed in the cycle of politics. There's endemic complexity. The subject matter has become increasingly difficult. You heard, you know, Dodd-Frank was 17,000 pages of regs. I mean, it's, you know, an astounding amount of stuff comes out. And a typical example would be competition law, where it used to be if you had to get through antitrust authorities, you dealt with the U.S. Now you have to deal with the U.S. and the EU. And now there's new uh, competition law in China. Every country's got it, but China is a big player as well. So there's just enormous complexity on any subject, competition law being one. And then, of course, there are multiple venues and actors. There's legislation, regulation, investigation, enforcement, litigation, debates in the media, and diverse roles for public authorities in the three different branches. So this is all, you all know this, but it's just putting it in one place, I think, suggests the enormous complexity uh, that businesses face. A second important background fact, I think, is that, at least in my judgment, there has been a tremendous change <coughs> in the CEO role. Uh, they have to address business and society issues, the multiple dimensions of law, public policy, and political power, as well as the eternal verities of products, markets, finance, and competitors. And it's a key determinant of what business can and cannot do. For example, doing business in China is as much about uh, politics, public policy, and the power of the party and the government as it is about market and products. I mean, I used to try to train the, the GE folks who are going to work in China, and they, they sort of think it was North Dakota. You know, if we have a good product, we can figure out the market, we can get distribution, it'll all be cool. Not so true. Um, and even in the EU, <coughs> which is heavily industrial, industrial policy, and in the developing world like India, which is chaos, uh, the, the, all these issues are as important as the, as the pure business issues of, of products, technology, and going to market. Uh, so what are some of the problems with that sort of short background? What are some of the problems business faces in public policy? Well, I need hardly tell this group 
Uh, there's obviously an, a tremendous amount of alienation in, in the citizenry and populist revolt, and you can read all the reasons, loss of jobs, trade, technology. It's not just trade, but technology, changing economy, recession, et cetera, stagnant wages, growing inequality, and a real perception of being left behind by economy and business. And that's always affected by <clears throat> attitudes that some of these disaffected people have on religion, race, and immigration. Uh, there's then, a, more specifically, tremendous antagonism towards business uh, because of specific layoffs, offshoring scandals, outside executive comp, really grotesque, in my judgment, ridiculous executive comp. Um, uh, the outsized influence in public policy due to money, uh, crony capitalism, lots and lots of stuff that uh, exists in the uh, federal law and regulation that does not necessarily advance the public interest but does advance the private interest only and a sense of the rigged system. I mean, in that sense, uh, one of the candidates last year, although we overstated it and it was um, demagogic, uh, I think there is a sense that the system is rigged and doesn't work very well. There are conflicts in the business community. Business is not a monolith. I mean, it's a joke. Everybody talks about the business community, but uh, uh, as some of the people in this room know very well, there's huge variation in diversity. There's sharp divisions on public policy. For example, on healthcare, net neutrality, border tax, internet retail, <coughs> just to take a few examples from the headlines. Uh, there's the normal problem of the lowest common denominator. Uh, there are business groups, but they all often <coughs> kind of go to the mean, revert to the mean or the middle, in my judgment, the bottom. Um, and then there's the problem of ideological differences. I mean, we have to face it. There are tremendous differences of, of, about ph philosophy of government. Uh, within the business community, just like every other community. <coughs> then there's the problem of tremendous uh, geopolitical trends and risk. If you're a global company, you are navigating state capitalism, socialism, populism, state-centric industrial policy, liberal market economies, an enormous range of different kinds of, of uh, economic systems and different kinds of laws. And then, of course, there's the ever-evolving mega-threats uh, that in this day and age can affect seriously uh, your, your performance, and I won't read the list, of, but you're well aware of them. And then I would add that there are uh, sort of the mega dilemmas and problems in the age of Trumpian upheaval. Um, there's how, there's the, the nativism protectionism that he espouses and we're, you know, going to see today in, in Davos and we've sort of seen on and off. We don't know exactly what it means. Uh, on the other hand, uh, how do we stand for globalization but also deal with its discontents? This is not the lecture where I'm going to talk about how businesses failed to deal with globalization and its discontents, but Danny Roderick, who's one of the most distinguished uh, professors at this school, has been very articulate and, in fact, was one of the earliest peoples to say, people to say that pure globalization, without worrying about the impact domestically, was going to undercut, uh, undercut globalization. <coughs> On, re on regulatory change, <clears throat> do we repeal or do we reform? There's a tremendous tendency for business, especially small businesses who aren't very sophisticated, to just suck at the trough uh, because, and to just blow everything away, forgetting that a lot of regulation is actually promoting some social good. So do we repeal Obamacare or do we try to reform it? And, and do we do that with the environmental laws, uh, safety law, health and safety laws? I mean, there's, this is a huge issue for the uh, corporate community, do they have the talent and the sophistication to basically maybe modify regulations, which often go too far and the regulators often don't understand business, 
but not just blow it all up. Then, of course, there's the endless questions about social safety net and infrastructure um, and taxing and spending issues, the fundamentals of democratic culture, institutions, and law, which are not things that business naturally has much affinity for. They, they don't really deal with those kinds of issues, and yet they are the core of our society and the core, in fact, I would argue, of uh, sort of a liberal economy. <clears throat> so business is often short-term, narrowly focused and reactive, and it needs systematic forward-looking and a real sense of public-private balance. Um, now I want to talk a little bit about the mission of the company. This is my particular formulation, but I deeply believe uh, that global capitalism has to be based on this mission, high integrity, with high performance <coughs> and sound risk management. That is the mission of business. And high integrity, strong sustained economic growth, superior to high quality goods and services that benefit society. What you do, what you make is really important and one of the most important things that a business decides. Providing durable benefits to the shareholders and other stakeholders. And balancing risk taking and risk management. Optimizing the share, the stake, excuse me, the stakeholder interest <coughs> over the short term, medium and long term. Trade-offs between all the different stakeholders in different time periods. It's not formulaic. It will depend on what the mission of the corporation is and what it does. And maximizing shareholder value, I think, is well on its way to being discredited. And it's not really the way that managers want to manage. They want to do this. And the question is, what's the impact of the stock market at the moment on them? This is, again, a lecture not about that, uh, but it's a subject that is of, of great interest. And let me give you one site. Uh, just a, a great article by two friends of mine at the business school, Joe Bauer and Lynn Payne. It's called The Error at the Heart of Corporate Leadership. Most boards believe their main duty is to maximize shareholder value. It's not. And it was in the Harvard Business Review in May and June of, uh, of uh, last year, of 2017. It's a great summary of the debate. And it's a, it's a very uh, robust debate. <clears throat> so that's high performance. And high integrity is the robust adherence to the spirit and letter of formal Financial legal rules, it's the voluntary adoption of global ethical standards that bind the company and its employees and balance public policy uh, beyond the mandate of current formal rules. And the reason I think that public policy is like ethics is that it's, it's really a voluntary choice that you make. What positions do you take on all sorts of public policies is different than whether you obey the laws that are mandated uh, under it's, And so it's, to me, the way, the way I think about it, it's much closer to ex ethics, which I'm going to talk about before I talk about a public policy. So law, ethics, and values, uh, the employee commitment <coughs> to uh, the values of honesty, candor, fairness, reliability, and trustworthiness. I stop in this slide for a little while because, it's, it, to me, it is really the framework in which we have to operate. This is critical, the employee values, because it, it, it basically dictates what happens inside the company, uh, to have a sort of not a, a turf-fighting, backbiting company, but an incredibly productive company, but it's also about the relationships that the company has with the other uh, constituent parts of society. And I believe you cannot have those values <clears throat> unless you also have adherence to the formal rules, financial and legal, and the voluntary adoption of sensible ethical standards, which most big companies have. I mean, they don't talk about it a lot, but most of them actually do make a lot of decisions that are voluntary and beyond what the law requires. So this has a strong business and society link. It's the core of trust that every institution must be based on, in my judgment, strong, high performance, high integrity, sound risk management. 
and it's really uh, absolutely essential, and it goes, and again, as I say, public policy is an important piece of, of this formulation and an important piece of citizenship. Um, I believe that when I was in the company, I, we, I sort of focused, I had everybody thinking about four duties that we had to perform. This is uh, sort of on the ethical side, but it will relate, and I'll come back to it in a minute in the public policy context. <laughs> we had duties to our own institution. Um, we had duties to the clients and the stakeholders. We had duty to the rule of law and the administration of justice, which is essential to capitalism. And then we, of course, had duties to securing public goods upon which the sign the company depended, which cannot be attained from the market alone. This required very broad vision and, and knowledge of the business leaders. Uh, and it's way beyond philanthropy, although philanthropy is part, but it was basically making all these part of business operations, not just part of the foundation's, you know, 300 million, 500 million, billion, whatever they gave every year. Um, and so thinking about this as a framework was something that <clears throat> we tried to talk about on a pretty regular basis. And let me talk for a second <laughs> about how you think about ethics, because it's not, um, at one hand, sort of a Rawlsian or Kantian or Hobbesian or Lockean or whatever philosopher you want uh, system. I mean, I was not the assistant secretary, I'm sorry, I was not the, uh, the, uh, the senior vice president for moral philosophy, I was just the humble lawyer. Um, but uh, at the, on the other hand, it's not just pulling stuff out of your ear either. Um, that there should be periodic high-level meetings led by the CEO to identify, analyze, and decide these issues. There should be early warning systems for the four duties where you canvass continuously uh, employees, customers, shareholders, customers, suppliers, creditors, and influencers who are maybe not stakeholders but are people who are very influential in how people view the company, the media, the community, the politicians, the regulators, the, the, the enforcers, etc. So constant outreach to the constituents. There are a wide range of sources that relate to these uh, constituents. Then there's triage by senior management on, <coughs> management on the issues for analysis and subsequent decision about whether to adopt voluntary, voluntarily as an ethical position that would bind the whole company or public policy that would potentially bind the whole company made at the top levels of the corporation. Indeed, a lot of these, and I'll talk about a couple in a second, would go to the board because they were so important. So this process is, can be very systematic. And these, these meetings could be quarterly. They could be uh, twice yearly. But having a process run by the staff um, to surface and decide both analysis and decision about voluntary ethical issues, in my judgment, is the a very critical part of running a modern corporation today. And then in terms of deciding issues, and again, <coughs> this is hard to cover in one slide in five seconds, but it's, there's no, again, cookie cutter, there's no system. It's always very contextual and very multifactorial, and it's a blend of what I would term, and everybody can have a different cut on this, prudential factors and moral considerations. Now, the prudential factors are really what's the impact of the decision, uh, third-party sourcing, uh, non-discrimination in Arab countries, um, building uh, factories uh, to uh, world standards. <coughs> what's the impact on both stakeholders and influencers? And you have to act disaggregate each type because one of the, the other cliches is that there's no such thing as a customer or as a shareholder. I mean, the idea that there's a shareholder is a complete joke. They're, they're, it's, a, it's a zoo. It's a menagerie. It's not a, it's not a single entity. So you have to disaggregate all these sort of constituencies. 
And then you have to not only figure out what the actual impact is, you have to figure out what the perception of the impact is, because that may be more important than the impact itself, and then how it changes over time. And then what's the relation of that issue to other issues in terms of importance? So in terms of three-dimensional chess uh, that's moving at a fairly rapid rate of speed, this is pretty complicated. Um, and then in terms of moral considerations, it's sort of the rights of others, the duties of the corporate citizen, the norms of society, where do they come from? They can be drawn from a variety of normative sources. Uh, among the best, actually, are global business codes. There are people who have been spending a lot of time over the last 30 years uh, thinking about what business should do, whether it's the UN or the International Chamber of Commerce or the Roundtable or professors of the Harvard Business School. Um, there's a lot out there that you can look at, and it includes concepts like fiduciary duties, respect for property, respect for individual dignity, fairness, reliability, transparency. I mean, it's not, you know, stuff that's, that's sort of you can't understand. I mean, these are concepts that do have reference in the real world. And if you break it down further, for example, under dignity, you could talk about health and safety, privacy, enduring force, respecting freedom of association and expression, and then under health and safety, safe products, safe workplace, third-party suppliers with safe practices. So this, it becomes real. Um, it's just a question of what you want to do given <coughs> those, cho those choices. And the line between prudential and moral, in my view, is not sharp. Um, and decisions based uh, must be based, too, on the views that it's not just about cost. It's about investment. You are investing in the company for its reputation, for its relationships, for its trust, for all these things. That's a soft set of concepts. Sometimes you can make it hard. Uh, in terms of numbers and discounted rate of return and all those good things, but it's a soft, judgmental matter. And also as important is what's the accounting period. I mean, if you're, it's not the quarter. It's a year or two years or three years, um, and you've got to be very wise. This is really uh, involved moral imagination <clears throat> and great judgment to do this kind of stuff. I mean, examples, as I indicated, would be labor standards for third-party suppliers, voluntary reduction of greenhouse gases, uh, building factories to world, not local standards, and providing severance health training and outplacement for displaced workers, whether it's workers displaced by trade, uh, by technology, by AI, whatever the, whatever the case may be. Uh, so th this, this ethical framework is going to come back and be applied, really, when you're thinking about public policy. Just a word on corporate citizenship versus corporate social responsibility. As I've indicated, in my view, citizenship has these three elements, performance, integrity, and risk management. The limits of CSR, and this is somewhat just a nomenclature debate, but I do think we get kind of citizenship is a much better way of thinking about the role of business and society, I think, than CSR. Um, CSR doesn't always deal with the benefits of performance, formal compliance, and risk management. It focuses on the ethical duties of a single company. But with societal issues, there can be a, a situation where you act alone, which creates all sorts of free rider problems. You can try to act as a, as a group of companies trying to <coughs> implement some kind of ethical standards, but then there are always antitrust and accountability issues. Or you can support public policy. I used to go give speeches when I was a senior corporate officer to CEOs and CFOs and talk about that they really ought to think about good public policy because, in a way, it leveled the playing field. It was better for competition than some of these other things. That if you, if you had laws that mattered, and that were dealt with important things, you, and you were more efficient and more effective in getting it done, you had a competitive advantage over your um, competitors. Now, <laughs> needless to say, many people thought that was heresy, and it was 
led to some interesting Q&As, but, uh, but I deeply believe that. <clears throat> and so the comparison is, and I'll spend more time on it, you can see why I think corporate citizenship makes more sense. So let's go back now to public policy. Uh, in terms of organization, the CEO must be the company leader here. I think one of the things, I'm not sure how many of you have had business experience, I assume many of you had, have had some, which is why you're in the room. The corporation is still the most hierarchical entity in our society. Um, of course, there are some uh, checks and balances, but compared to the diffusion of power that exists almost everywhere else, uh, the CEO is still runs a very hierarchical organization. He can kill people on the spot. Um, you know, he promotes, he, 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 he uh, compensates, um, he retains, or she. Uh, and so it's still a very powerful position. If they don't provide the leadership, it won't happen. And aptitude is a key in, in now, I think, in, in board choice. I've written a lot about this, that we have to change the spec for CEOs. Um, and, and one of the most important things would be a Kennedy School degree, a joint, you know, MBA and, and MPP, uh, because this is this, this area is so important. Um, you also need business leaders with aptitude. You could have a, you know, a very uh, sophisticated CEO, and you get to middle management. The guys are in the PNL, and ladies are in the PNL groups. They don't have any of this knowledge or any feel for this, and it's just an annoyance to them. They don't get it. <clears throat> so you really need. In my judgment, very serious changes in business and executive education. So the CEO must lead. You have to have annual business plans to address three issues. What is desirable from the company's point of view, but also in terms of society, what is feasible, and how a, a policy can be uh, implemented if enacted. And each headquarters group and operating unit presents priorities. The headquarters group being things like tax or trade or environment, and then if you've got different business units, whether it's finance or communications <coughs> or aerospace, whatever the case may be, they each have to go through their world and decide what are the most important issues at these different phases of, uh, of, of, of development. And then you have to have an overall uh, plan for every year on the public policy side. Think about it for a second. Whether it's GE or GM or Pfizer or Microsoft or Google, um, that just like they've got a business plan, they have a pretty sophisticated plan that, that is also across the world, both threats and opportunities, uh, to do this. So, so this organization, again, this is, this, I don't mean to make it sound dry because it is very, very real uh, and stuff is coming at you all the time. Um, and so it's a, it's a very real and important thing. In terms of the, how you organize the staff, you do need somebody below the CEO to do it, whether it's a senior vice president for public affairs. I did it in the, in the big company that I was part of, but you often there are senior people from the State Department or the Treasury who go to corporations and are very senior people reporting directly to the chairman and who are you know, the EVP for public affairs. Um, but the most important thing is having two types of experts. You have to have really smart policy people. Uh, not the political folks, but the policy folks who have true substantive domain expertise, deep knowledge, and they need to be located in, in the headquarters with the business teams. Uh, if, uh, if they're cross-cutting issues like taxes, trade, EHS, or IP, or in the divisions of discrete issues I mentioned, like health, aerospace, energy, telecom, they connect the trajectory of the business with the trajectory of public policy. They help define what's desirable and feasible 
they are critical. I mean, you have to, to, if you think about a healthcare company, having someone with tremendous health policy expertise is something which probably happens for sure, but it's, it's, it's critical. And these jobs, as sort of being part of the headquarter group where you're thinking about the company strategy, but you're bringing in the public policy dimension, are fantastic jobs uh, for uh, Kennedy School students, in my judgment. I mean, they, they should serve in government, they should serve in nonprofits. Everybody should have multiple careers, but one stop in their career, uh, which would be great for them and great for the company, would be these domain experts in, in the headquarters group helping the companies to decide their strategies. Then, of course, they're also the political experts, and these are the standard folks who are located in the political capitals. Their clients are the political leaders, and their job is to build support with others to get things done with integrity, communication, advocacy, coalition building, integrity. But it's the fusion of policy and politics which is key. The policy, policy experts have to have an aptitude for politics, and, the, and the, uh, this should be uh, political. The political experts need to have an aptitude for policy, and they have to be able uh, to work together. I don't know if any of you have been in government, uh, but the relationship between the head of legislative affairs and the head of policy is absolutely critical. I mean, I, I happen to be the head of policy in a huge department, and my best friend, literally, was the, was the Assistant Secretary for Legislation, um, who had been head of uh, legislation for the UAW. Uh, it is absolutely, absolutely critical. So you have to understand both the intricacies of policy and the complexity of politics, and also how actions in one jurisdiction affect actions in others in this global world. You know, if you're going to take a position on safety in Europe, you're going to have to, you're, it's going to come right back to you in China or Indonesia or the United States or whatever. So that's the organization. In terms of substance, let's go back to the four ethical duties. Again, the only point here is under each of these duties, there are a number of enormously important issues. Worker dislocation, trade, AI, technology, et cetera, occupational health and safety, pension rules, subsidies for green energy, just to take examples. For client stakeholders, governance rules, consumer protection, quality in the supply chain. Rule of law, non-discrimination, competition law, anti-corruption law, rule of law in emerging markets, securing public goods, well, you know, all the huge things, infrastructure, aging, healthcare, climate change, defense, counterterrorism, cybersecurity. But these are all things which affect these big companies. And so the real question is, um, how can you possibly uh, do all these things? And it's, you can cut the, sort of the public policy world the way I did before in terms of the broad purposes of public law, growth, workers, consumers, public welfare, or you can cut it this way. I mean, it's just, a, it's just an intellectual exercise. You can do it whichever way you want in terms of what works best inside the company. I, I found that when you, when you were dealing with business leaders, this way made, made more sense than this way, than the, than the broad purposes that they teach you in sort of government classes. Uh, but, you know, everybody, you know, there's no, no right answer to this. Um, and in terms of substance, last point, <clears throat> there's the direct and the indirect. The direct impacts of the company's competitiveness and profitability, but it also serves the public interest, and it's both offensive and defensive. There can be things like paradigm shifts, like prevention and health care, where we have tried slowly to move from acute care to prevention, or fracking in oil and gas. There's approval of new technology, things like digital mammal hybrid locomotives, two-engine uh, ocean transoceanic plane, which is much le more fuel efficient and much less noisy. Then there's the convergence and harmonization of conflicting regulatory regimes between 
you know, jurisdictions, for example, the EU and the US on privacy, taxes, manufacturing standards, competition law. Um, and these are not necessarily just uh, pro-business uh, um, measures. The, these really do create competition and the sort of certainty and can sort of take the level up all across uh, the globe. So these are just examples of the kind of direct uh, issues that we worry about all the time. And then, of course, there's the indirect ones, the, the, the sort of the public goods, uh, the impact on national security the economy of the consumer. Uh, obviously, the health of the nation has a, a, a deep effect on businesses. So again, you see the list that I indicated before. The problem is that the indirect issues are very hard for companies to deal with. They involve extremely complex and contentious facts. Uh, they get the whole polity at each other's throats, and companies don't like to be uh, out in, in things that are highly uh, uh, conflicted unless it's their own interest. It absorbs enormous, to deal with these big issues, enormous time and resources. And then there's a lot of uncertainty whether you can ever get anything done. I mean, I have uh, certainly broken my lance on numerous times spending two or three years on something, and I had a big measure, which I'm not going to bore you with. And we lost at 59. Uh, we, we, we missed closure by one vote after three, three years of work. Yeah. That's life. Um, um, and uh, lastly, and lastly on substance, the touchstone of corporate public policy must be that provisions truly advancing public, not just the private interest. There's an enormous tendency of self-delusion. <laughs> My good friend Dickey will, who had a lot to do with companies knows this, that whatever, that whatever they're for is, for is good for the country. You know, what's good for GM is good for America. Um, you know, it's, well, it's not really quite true. Um, and corporate policy positions don't always recognize that there has to be a balance between the important values at stake. In any piece of public policy, there are always uh, values in conflict, and you've got to figure out an equitable way to deal with them. <coughs> the standard Arthur Oaken, Oaken equity and efficiency in general, the access, costs, and quality in healthcare, expedition and safety and drug approval, short-term cost and long-term benefit and environmental regs. You know, we could go on and on and on, but there Every one of these subjects has got tremendous conflicts at the, the center of them, and they have to be equitably resolved. And then the perpetual problem is too much corporate involvement is in the range, in the service of, of chronic capitalism, as I indicated. Um, and add to this the, the, the ideological split. So it's the substance in terms of advancing both the public and the private interest in what they do is nice to say, very complex to even analyze. And one of the things I, I really would hope, as I'm going to say at the end, but I'll say it now, that the Kennedy School would do would be get into greater depth as to the different kinds of considerations that different parts of industry are, are worrying about, because they are very, they are very influential, for sure. Um, on substance, uh, I was going to give two examples. Um, let me just give uh, one, uh, that when I first came to GE, how many of you were of something called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act? When I first came to GE, about five, uh, I was a greenhorn, uh, five uh, uh, Fortune 25 general counsel came to see me. They said, let's, get, let's gut the FCPA, because at that point time, only the U.S. had it, which prohibits foreign bribery by corporations. All states prohibit bribery within their the jurisdiction, within the United States, within England, within France, whatever. But the, only the United States at that point had a law which prohibited corporations from bribing in Indonesia or China or Japan or whatever the case may be. So I said, well, let me think about it. And I went back to them. 
about five days later, I said, well, how about if we leveled up rather than leveling down? Meaning, why don't we try to get the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in an international convention that binds all 34 at that time industrialized countries and see what happens? Long story short, it happened. I mean, it took forever. It hasn't been entirely successful. It's only a little piece of the corruption problem, which is a great scourge in the world. But it was an example where, interestingly, Jack Welch, um, not exactly a goo-goo, um, you know, was all for it because it, this is a real competitive issue. Um, and so it was something that we were able to do, which, again, in my judgment, was something that was important for the public interest, but clearly something also important for the public interest. And we did the same thing in climate change, uh, where we put together a climate change coalition that was not just the manufacturers of, of um, power equipment, which is what we were, it was the utilities, the autos, NRDC, EDF, the municipalities, and we basically put together the bill that was introduced in 2009, uh, the cap and trade bill, which went nowhere because of recession and for other reasons, but we actually had a tremendous coalition that produced a piece of legislation with legislative language, not just bullshit concepts. Yes, sir. Yeah. You know, all of the details are very impressive and, and important. Uh, I've always found that the biggest challenge is getting the leadership from both components in order to uh, sort of uh, adopt these concepts. Uh, both components being? Well, business and, and government. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Um, in 2000, I was at the, uh, in Davos when uh, Clinton was the first U.S. president to appear. He showed up an hour late to the auditorium where three or 400 business leaders were there. Um, and um, security wanted to move everyone out so they could do another uh, sweep, and no one moved. Uh, they, and, and the sort of reply in the room was, we didn't come here to see him, he came here to see us. <clears throat> at the editorials the next day, we're talking about, is this the beginning of big business sort of interrupting uh, big government? Fast forward to, to, to today, uh, we see BlackRock announcing their... Yeah, can, can you hold for one second? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that. Can you just hold for one sec? And, and I'll come back and finish the question. Okay, because, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm close to getting to that. Okay, so in addition to the substance and these examples, <coughs> let's go now to process. I've talked about mission, talked about uh, uh, um, organization, I've talked about substance. Here, here's the process issue. I think we all recognize that there, we have a broken political culture um, and that business ought to consider working with other actors in our political system on key uh, questions of public process to engender more civility and compromise and to in regain lost credibility and trust. Again, I'm a practical idealist and part of the time I may be more idealistic than practical and this people may say this is a bunch of baloney, this is never going to happen, but at least I think it's important that we try and think about it. One of them would be new substantive limits on campaigns of Washington money. People talk about um, uh, Citizens United. I, I'm, I was a constitutional lawyer. I practiced in front of the Supreme Court. I was a clerk there. I think there are ways that you can deal with the constitutional issues. I'm not going to bore you with them, but I think there are ways to do that. So that's substantive limits. Then there's disclosure. The, the uh, IRS, a lot of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, super PACs are sort of IRS entities, and the disclosure from the IRS, as opposed to the FEC, is interminably slow. So you never really know what's happening in the election cycle, uh, and so you have to figure that out. Just going back here, we have to figure out a way 
to basically do what happens with other regulatory agencies, which is elite, which is the power, the party in power has control of the administrative agency. The moment we have an FEC that has been deadlocked forever and is completely worthless, um, I, I guess I'd rather take a chance that uh, you basically allow the president who wins to elect to have a majority and have it go back and forth, so that the, at least there's some movement in the law because there's no movement in the law at the moment of any consequence on the FEC. We have to develop a way to have fairer, clearer facts and policy disputes so it's not just the guys with the most money um, who can hire the fanciest experts. And that would be to have like a mediation or like the role of CBO on some of these complicated things. You try to develop both what are the consensus facts and what are the disputed facts, just to do that. And then on the disputed facts, what are the key assumptions that underlie them, just so there can be a more sensible conversation as opposed to this insane thousand-page battles of the experts uh, that could cut through the stuff. Again, that's a very idealistic uh, idea, but it's not crazy. I mean, the FCC or the, the could, could do something like that. The EPA could do something like that, uh, where you get very distinguished uh, people uh, to, to basically, who have tremendous reputation for fairness, to try to distinguish between the agreed-upon facts and the contested facts. We need to build broad coalitions. Uh, I, I, Dickey was, excuse me for picking on him, but it was part of this. But, but uh, although his was much more of a think tank than a than, a, than an active lobbying group, um, the conference board. But the 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 the, the, the corporate uh, trade associations are awful, just generally awful. And business has to figure out a way to have broader coalitions. This climate change group. We had the environmental groups, we had the municipalities, we had the autos, we had the utilities, et cetera, et cetera. You need to do this. You need to have a broad coalition both to get stuff done and then to have it be durable. If, it's, you know, if you're just slamming it through because you've got power at the moment, it won't work. And I think, that, again, one of the things about business is that they tend to do a lot of headbutting at the business council and the business roundtable and the NAM and all that kind of, and the chamber, God help us. Um, but, you know, it, it's not necessarily um, in the public interest, to put it mildly. Uh, we got to cool the rhetoric, um, and we have to avoid partisanship. And I think, again, I think businesses generally do try to avoid partisanship, but there's some notorious examples of pharma and the oil and gas that don't. Um, and I think that that uh, is one of the many reasons that business has got a bad reputation. So these are just some of the process reforms that need to be done. What are the prospects? <laughs> Uh, these political processes relating to money, facts, balance, coalitions, rhetoric, and bipartisanship may be as vexing and controversial for the business community as substantive policy positions. Some companies are going to clearly resist. They don't give a damn. They just believe that their particular substantive position is far more important than the civility and health of our democracy, and they're not going to do it. There's no question about it. Nonetheless, I think that one of the things of citizenship that I would hope, and it's, there's not much sign this is happening, but I would hope would happen was that corporations would get together with others in the society to try to talk about political reforms to get back to an era when we could have some compromise, civility, actual rational discourse, uh, and get things done. Uh, and so this, in my judgment, are at the core of what corporate citizenship means. This is subject to way too vast for a single corporation, but requires a broad-based coalition of the willing, extending far beyond corporations, and maybe one step past our dystopic present, what leading political scientist Francis Fukuyama has warned is American political decay. I mean, you should read his, his he's got two huge new books about the, the, the nature of uh, democratic society and how we are now in a period of decay. They're quite fascinating. Okay, mega issues in the age of upheaval. Here are the problems. There's a bit, glimmers of broader business response in specific areas. 
Charlottesville Immigration, uh, NAFTA to some extent, Affordable Care Act, at least there every health group. What was interesting about the, the, the Affordable Care Act uh, debate was that every single health group, which would normally be on the Republican side, the AMA, the, a, the American Hospital Association, not, the nurses, every, the doctors, everybody, uh, was against what they were doing, and yet <coughs> didn't matter. But the corporations, healthcare corporations, were on the right side, and you can argue whether that was in the public interest that I have, but I think it was generally in the right way. And then the Paris Climate Accord, a lot of companies have objected to not being involved in it, although they are going ahead and doing uh, climate uh, reductions in their own uh, uh, companies. Uh, but there's often a very narrow business response. And so the problem is, of course, they're confusing cross-currents. And I would be the last one to say that I'm very optimistic today uh, that the business can solve the problems of policy and politics in the era of our people, which is the topic of the talk. Uh, there's no national business organization that has strong, identical voice on the core dilemmas and problems, in my view. Uh, for example, on trade, the, everyone's gotten terrified because of the politics, and so they can't talk in a sensible way about what are the benefits of globalization, what are the problems of globalization, how do we deal with that, as opposed to just nativism and gross protectionism, which is at least the rhetoric out of the Trump administration. We could debate what exactly they've done. Um, and on deregulation, as I said before, there's a tendency to just pig out at the trough and blow it all away and not think about how to reform it rather than repeal it. Social safety net, you know, everybody just wants to deal with entitlement programs and not figure out, fine, we need to cut entitlement costs, but how do we still protect uh, people, which is really the debate. And on democratic institutions, the companies are basically hopeless. They don't, it's just not their, it's just not their thing. They don't, there's never been a capability, and you may disagree, but there's never been a capability in the corporate community to deal with the fundamentals of the Constitution and how the society is organized. And there's no national business leader. This is, in my judgment, been one of the great failures that during the financial crisis, there was not a single sensible person from the business community speaking out. Um, that the Lloyd Blankfeins and Jamie Dimons, you know, opposed the legislation. They may have privately said, well, we do need to solve a few problems. Today, there's no national business leader speaking out. <coughs> Everyone's afraid. It's like being president of a university these days. You're just afraid to say anything because there are too many conflicting constituencies. And I think it's a real problem. And so we're in a pretty sorry state, in my judgment, where Steve Schwartzman is the symbol of the business community. He's, he's the president's best business friend. I think that's not what we really want. Um, but I, at the same time, I really deeply believe that citizen pressures, citizenship pressures are going to continue. These business and society issues are there. There is a cycle in politics. They are never going to go away. And smart companies are going to be thinking very carefully about how to navigate not just today, but the next period of time because the, the, the pressures are absolutely there. Lastly, there is this from Larry Fink, who is the uh, CEO of BlackRock. He sent a letter out to CEOs investee companies, uh, basically, just to read this part of it, business must respond to broader societal challenges. Society is demanding that companies serve a social purpose. Every company must not only deliver financial performance, but also show what makes a positive contribution to society. Older stakeholders, including shareholders, employees in which they operate. And then he said that they, of course, have a big staff in evaluating their companies, and they're going to increase by a couple hundred of people who are looking at the social purpose of the investee companies. I won't read the quote. You know, it, it's been viewed as sort of important, but it's, he, he gave no examples, and what it means, we don't know. Um, so it's, I would say at this point, it is merely a straw in the wind, um, and we're going to have to see 
uh, whether it means it. Right, let me wrap it up. Um, but so I, I mean, it's important, and he's a very <coughs> Uh, prestigious and important business leader, and obviously he <coughs> owns important shares in major companies. So what are the implications of all this for the Kennedy School? Um, obviously, you guys cover tremendously important topics, and the, especially the BizGov Center. If you look at just look at the list of programs, um, you know, it's astounding. It's great stuff. The question is, do you involve broad business considerations um, uh, in these courses by looking at depth of the, of the public policy process inside the companies, how they work, what all the kinds of things that I've talked about, which I hope incoherent as I may have been, are, can, you can see are intellectually very stimulating. I mean, they're very, very complicated, interesting stuff. So does the Kennedy School, when they're dealing with these topics, do they, of course they take into account the interest groups and what their positions are, but do they look at what's really driving them what sort of the dynamic is, and what the organization is, what the culture is, and what the considerations are, what the differences are, all the divisions within the, in the, within the business community, and why. I would submit probably not as much as it could be done uh, without having studied the curriculum in great detail. So the goal is maybe to enrich the view of the policy process with more in-depth corporate perspective, because so much public policy is about uh, moderating the effects of the pure market and about defining the frontier between the public and the private sector. Uh, and preparing, as well, HKS students for policy positions in private, not just the public sector. And so I think that one thing that the BizGov Center might do is take a little bit of look at the, what's going on at the business school. And I'm a huge believer in joint degrees. I think every Harvard professional student ought to major in, in, in public policy and minor in law and, and business, or major in business and minor in law and public policy. I mean, th those three... Uh, professional schools just absolutely go together and we're still light years away from really integrating. But I think one of the things that could be done is to, for the BizGov Center to at least see what, what's at the business school and whether it makes any sense. There's some great professors over there. The names are at the top. Uh, Dutch, of course, is here as well as there. Uh, they do do case studies from a corporate perspective. There was a recent interesting article which got a huge amount of attention on CEO as activists um, on, in the age of Trump, focusing not just on the liberals but also on the, on the um, Chick-fil-A and the Hobby Lobby uh, types who were going in all directions, but that everybody was active and sort of all agitated and doing things. And that, that the author said it was a change. I don't believe it's much of a change, but I'm not here to critique the article. Interesting, good research, sort of fun to debate. So what the Kennedy School needs to do is not just train leaders for the public sector or the nonprofit sector, but people in this school are going to end up in running corporations. And they, they need, I, my judgment, the Kennedy School really needs to think about that. And for God's sake, what is the Biz Government Center about? But that. Um, it's not just that you're going to send people out to the public sector who understand business. You want to send people into the private sector who are going to understand the public sector. <coughs> So you're going to train top corporate leaders. I've indicated you're going to train policy experts who can work at corporate headquarters as domain experts, which is a great job. And then you can think about a more innovative curriculum, curriculum, um, curriculum uh, more detail about cor corporate culture processes I've indicated, joint degree courses, um, uh, stuff that uh, is taught to the joint degree students. But they're only two to three. They're only two percent. I mean, John will have to tell me, but it's a tiny, tiny percentage of any class, if there are 500 students at the Kennedy School every year, is that right? So there are about 1,000 headcount here, and there are about 25 a year in the joint degree program, so you have 75 joint 
graduate degree students. Right, so but I was, if I was taking, I was taking a class in a class in a where class, 500 right, enter right. here and 1,000 enter there, they're, they're 25, you know, it's a couple percent. It's, it's a tiny percent. And what I was trying to suggest is that some of the things that are done in, for those joint degree students have the applicability for other students. That they ought, those, some of the courses ought to be made available. And there's some great courses at the business school on something called Biggie, which is how you look at the world economy if you're in a business as opposed to if you're a Larry Summers economist. Um, how do you, a course on business ethics and policy called uh, Leadership and Corporate Accountability. And then Dutch teaches a business and government integration course for the third years. I just think that one way to think about this is to look and see what's done between the two schools and whether they have broader applicability to a broader range of students here. Anyway, um, that's the end of my, my pitch. I think uh, you know this is a wonderful school, and I just think that this is a dimension. There are many other dimensions, but given the importance of these global companies now, um, uh, this is a dimension which I think is worthy of uh, of more attention. So thanks very much for listening, and I'm sorry to have gone to a thousand years. Thank you. Sir, your question, I apologize. No, no, that's all right. I didn't, I didn't mean to preempt you either. So um, you, you've got the Maybe you should identify, we should, I, you know, be fun. I, who are you and... and uh, I, I'm, I'm Joseph Anton. I'm an investment banker and an attorney. And, um, and just you decide to get a free lunch? <laughs> yeah, every day. <laughs> 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 you know, I actually brought my own. But at any rate, um, so um, uh, the, I think the real challenge is because I've been involved in the Kennedy School and the sort of entrepreneurial uh, group that uh, interacts with the uh, uh, with the faculty. It was always very difficult for the faculty to appreciate the, uh, the business people. And it was very difficult for the business people to, uh, to sort of uh, appreciate the, the faculty. I see the real challenge is that government and business both have the same uh, goals in mind, and that's the sort of uh, uh, commonwealth welfare of, of the country. And they have to figure out how to work together. You know, you talked about no one stood up in 2008 from the business community, but then there were a lot of critics that the government regulators failed to sort of see the movement in financial, uh, financial instruments. So there's a, there's a little bit of blame on both sides. And, and maybe we're seeing uh, uh, businesses express more interest in corporate social responsibility today because gov uh, government may have failed us. In well, that's, and that's what Fink says. Fink says that one of, the, one of the many reasons that corporations have to do this is that there's discontent among the populace, but the government's also viewed as having failed on some critical functions. Now, we can have a debate whether business can ever substitute itself for government. I don't think so. But no, business can never. But you know, they can they can clearly work. They can clearly work together. And uh, and you know, it's shocking to see what goes on in government today. But for the drinking pie, the, the two parties are just trying to pick up uh, pick up the crumbs. So that's a real it's a real. Uh, Challenge and uh, I hope the outcome is possible. Yeah, and, and as I say, the part of the point of my being here today is to for the Kennedy School. I mean, it's sort of what what could the Kennedy School do just to augment and change and uh, grow what it's doing to sort of deal with some of these problems which may not be dealt with as thoroughly as they could be and that are important. That I mean, that's really parts. I'm not here to answer the problems of business in the Trump era. Um, which I think is 
pretty dismal thus far, but that's just a personal view. Yes, sir. Um, John Hayes with the uh, Advanced Leadership Initiative, which is a fellowship program. Um, Th this, I, this is this is Rosa Beth at all. Yes, yes. <laughs> many, many, many good friends who are <laughs> distinguished alums. Well, it's um, I've spent the last 21 years as the chief marketing officer of American Express. So, thank you for your presentation. I think at the core of this is the question: Is this a nice to have, or is this a must have? Business growth and sustainability. And I would clearly argue there's a lot of evidence that this is a must have for growth and sustainability for business. And I think once that's better understood, it, this, this program and this approach will be much more successful. Hey, but where, where, how would you evaluate where businesses view it today? Do they view it as a? I think they view it as a nice to have. Uh, and I would, let me, let, me, let me define the question. It's, it's sort of business and society issues. I mean, it's public policy, but it's also, it's also ethics. It's also you know, a concern about these poor ethical duties. Um, as, as part of the sort of the, the business ops. You know, I think, I think from an ethical standpoint, businesses for the most part are, are comprised of people who want to do the right thing. So I would start there. I think the issue is, is short-term growth and success versus long-term sustainability and growth. And I think that the short-term needs sometimes uh, outpower the longer-term view and the longer-term sustainable growth. And that, that conflict and that tension is there every day. And I think balancing that tension is, is at the core of this area. But understanding it's not a nice to have. I mean, I had the, I had the luxury of working for a company that's been in business for 168 years. When you have that kind of longevity, you right. start to understand right. why are we still here? And the answer to that question comes down to the points you've made. Yes, ma'am. Um, my name is Natalie. I'm an MBA student here at the Kennedy School, but I'm also a joint degree at Stanford GSB. Mm -hmm. I just finished my MBA. Um, and so first a comment and then a question. Cheers. Um, great. It was, it was great. Um, a lot of the, the resources that are available in like joint degree programs, classes at HBS are not available to joint degrees in other ways. I can't take courses at HBS for credit. Um, they, you know, they kick us out of all of those things, and I think that's unfortunate. Um, and we don't have access to a lot of the integrative conversation that maybe the dual degrees at HBS do. So that's just one thing I think the Kennedy School. I mean, that, you said it. You just said it better than I did, but that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there are a lot of those resources for the dual, the few twenty-five. Right, but right, there are right. But it's fifty of it's us. Two percent. It's two percent. Yeah, they got right. MBAs elsewhere, you know, by our own choice, and and it, it's frustrating that we don't have access to a lot of that conversation. So that's well, it's, an, it's an interesting comment in the sense of, just to be clear, you know, it's the the problem is, I hate to characterize it this way, it's the one hand clapping. Uh, right. Um, you know, where we may have that view at HKS that we should be, because, you know, we operate on a traditional schedule. You meet Tuesday, Thursday for class or whatever. HBS consciously or what, for whatever reason, I won't attribute motive necessarily, but you'll meet Monday and Tuesday, yeah. you know, or, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, and it makes it impossible for students in other schools to coordinate into that. Right. Schedule. The schedule's only a piece of it. Even if I were to make yeah, my no, schedule no, I, work, I still yeah. get credit, yeah. <laughs> which is a decision I don't think HKS is making, but it's still frustrating. Well, there are a lot of, I mean, I know I have the seminar for the second year of PP students, yeah. and most of them have taken courses at HBS for credit that they get credit towards their path concentration here at the Kennedy School. 
Yeah, but if you're a dual MBA with another program, do they prohibit you? We cannot get credit really? I didn't for know any that. course in HBS. We could take it as an auditor, but there's no course credit. But I think the I think the larger point is that there there are lots of really interesting things that are being done at the at the business school that would be of use to Kennedy School students. Obviously, they have 900 people in the class. I mean, they 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 have teaching limits. I mean, it, it, I'm just saying this is something. It's got to be thought about. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I, don't I, I don't have an answer. Yeah. But my question is that, from a career perspective, I found it difficult to convince both the public and private sector that the skill set I offer on the other side of the aisle is valuable, and that's especially if you want to go into more strategic roles and less direct policy roles on both sides. And you know, unless you're trying to get the job, that's the explicit role of the job is to bridge the divide. It's much harder to convince people outside of those. But I think that goes back to, to you know, was, um, uh, you know, does American Express have, you know, incredibly enlightened leadership? And the answer was yes. Who would, when you, if you said, I want to do this kind of job, they would say yes. I mean, I worked in a company that had 13 operating divisions. I was trying to stuff policy experts down the throats of the business people <laughs> to get to get them to do it. And I had, I had tremendous support from the CEO. So. I, and I think it's coming. I, I think it's coming. If I can say it from a very personal point of view, general counsels are now equal to CFOs. I mean, I've written a book called The Inside Council Revolution, and the reason they are is because of business and society issues, that most of these companies recognize that they have to deal with these issues and that the CFOs are great, but the general counsels who come from government or the high law firms or whatever they have, have an enormous amount to contribute as well. So there's been that change. I mean, we are now equivalent to the CFOs in the company. And this this can happen. I, I mean, these kinds of changes happen, and they happen, I, I say it a million times, not because of theory, but because of necessity. But because, as you were saying, companies are gonna realize that this is stuff that they've gotta deal with in a more sophisticated way. They can't just do this and hope it turns out all right. Yeah, well, I think my question though is, if, as I'm navigating my career from the bottom up, and there's not, like, there's not someone like you shoving with me, someone with my background, into the strategy office, how do I convince people that that's valuable? I love advice on that front. Okay, we'll have lunch. But I think, I don't think it's, I think if you look at, if you actually looked at any business, look at Google, I mean, a great place to go work right now are Google and Facebook. I mean, they are on the frontier of who knows what, whether it's gonna be private ordering or serious regulation, and it's all over the world, and they're getting their ass killed in Europe. I mean, if you were there, I mean, these are sort of what used to be tech companies, they didn't give a damn. You know, all of a sudden, this, this function is now critical, absolutely critical, I think. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I'm just reflecting what's in the popular prints, but it's pretty obvious. Um, so, you know, head, get an airplane ticket and go, go to Mountain View. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, I'm Jack Trost, I'm a Kennedy School alum, and since the Kennedy School, I've worked in the private sector, I've worked for the Commonwealth uh, in economic development, and I've also been representing government as a lobbyist. And I think this conversation is great. I always was fascinated with business and government strategy while I was here. It's what I've spent all my time since the Kennedy School doing. Um, I think you referred to it as managing tension and you know how it's getting better. Um, it seems to me that most of the things you talked about assume some kind of a stable system. And I'm just interested in your thoughts. Well, okay, but so maybe not. But in fact, they assume that the system is completely unstable and people better try to figure out where it's going. Okay, so pick an issue then that you put forth in terms of the ethical duties. To me, in my mind, uh, 
this attack on the rule of law is one of the most uh, significant that I've seen uh, taking place. And so how, and, and attacks on institutions, which you know have been held in high regard for a long time. I'm just interested in your comments on how that will impact this overall. Well, that's what I was saying, that it seems to me that corporations have to think now about a new set of issues. About, and, and they, but it's not them alone. Whether there is a coalition of church groups, other kinds of NGOs, universities, what have you, but that, that aren't that aren't sort of notoriously left, where you've got sort of some left-right mix, um, where they can speak out and and define the issue in a precise enough way that it's not just you know be for rule of law, but don't do this, don't do that, you know, very precise agenda. As I said on our, on our climate change thing and on, on anti-corruption, we had very hard-edged, practical proposals that were going to be enacted in law and we're going to bind people. And that it's 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 you need something like that, but I don't think it's impossible. The problem is that you know the companies are very stretched. The, the, this stuff takes time. We we can't forget that. And you've got to find the, the staff resources. The CEO, back to your point, has to be willing. It's it's a trivial amount of cost in terms. Of, I mean, brain brain smart people in a big company is a relatively low cost. Um, but you've got to be willing to commit to that and then listen to them. To make it happen, and I think the problem is that we're missing sort of part of the brain. And Dick, what do you think? I mean, Dick was head of the conference board for many years, and is what give us your comments before we leave here today? Whether you think Ben's full of shit or whether there's something to this? I think that uh, your comments, as usual, are insightful and wise, um, and, and I say that with, with, with all sincerity. I, I do have a friendly amendment uh, uh, about institutional investors. And by the way, I should say why I'm Dick Cavanaugh and I, I'm a Kennedy School recidivist uh, teaching here and now part-time. I also have an affiliation with BlackRock. Um, and, he, and he was head of the conference board for how long? Uh, 13 years. Yeah. Um, the institutional investor story. So uh, as passive investing, meaning people who invest in indexes rather than try to pick winning and losing stocks, is now 70% of the new cash flows in, in the whole world of investment, which means that there's about $9 trillion of, of, uh, of passive investment. Uh, that, by the way, is larger than the GDP of all but four countries. Um, so, you know, it's a big amount of money. Uh, three managers control uh, about uh, two-thirds of all of the passive investment, Blackrock being one of them, uh, the other being Vanguard and State Street, uh, which means because they have all of the stock, and that when you're a passive investor, you can't sell it. In other words, you're stuck with it, uh, and so you're going to hope that, that everybody performs as, as competently as they can. Um, each of the three big holders owns 9.9% of the 2,000 largest uh, uh, public companies in the world. Okay, so that's 30% of the votes, uh, which if you're a member of management uh, and you get elected every year or every three years or whatever it is, that's important. Now, uh, in terms of shots across the bow, so last year uh, there was a group called the Little Sisters of the Poor who uh, did their, their traditional uh, uh, 
resolution on the proxy of Exxon saying you don't pay enough attention to uh, global warming. And usually the little sisters of the poor voted all 800 shares of their stock. Uh, BlackRock voted 9.9% of uh, Exxon's stock with the little sisters. Um, I, there have been changes at Exxon. Uh, BlackRock also voted against the nominating committees of 19 Fortune 500 companies who had 100% white male boards um, in this last season. So I think, I, I, I mean, I think that the, the, the power of institutional investors has yet to be to, to be flexed, but I think we've seen straw in the wind. Some, yeah, some some instances of it. So I think that that, yeah. that may be uh, now. I'm hardly uh, uh, an objective observer. But. Let, let me respond to Dick. I, I would say that's great, and, and they will have influence. To my way of thinking, it still is the CEO. I mean, you, you, can, you can force them to do something, but the right way to do it is to have management mm -hmm. who will get, uh, the, the board will support it, and I, I'm sure the Black Rocks and State Streets and Fidelities and whomever of the world, vanguards of the world, will support uh, companies that are doing you know, socially responsible things. Um, so I think it's. I think that's a sort of a second stick and a negative stick to make people, like Larry said, you know, they have to have some social purpose. But the way to begin it is to have the company I, deeply believe in it and do it. I agree with your message completely. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm I'm agreeing with you too. I think it, I think it's a very important, and that's why I put the slide up. I think it's a very important sort of second uh, order thing. One last question, and then we're out of here. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm Aaron Malas. I'm actually a PhD student from the Fletcher School at Great. Tufts. What, what, um, what subject? Political economy. And so I'm looking at how businesses form associations and lobby for incentives, particularly in developing countries, uh, mostly in Latin America. But I was kind of curious about some of the, the comments you've made about groups and associations. And I'm kind of curious, you know, how do you begin to fix some of these existing institutions, or is it just coalition of willing? I, of I, again, I defer to someone who lived in that world. I, I think these companies are by definition hopeless. That if you want to do something, you create your own coalition. You just don't mess with them. I mean, they're just they're hopeless bureaucrats. Um, they've been had too many three martini lunches. Uh, they have no vision. I mean, it just it cannot be done. I I never. I mean, I was, I was the head of public affairs for GE for nearly 20 years, and I never, ever dealt with the trade associations if I could help it. So I guess in terms of sort of... And, but you have to be a big guy. I mean, we were big enough that we could go and call, make, I could make calls to big companies, and we could put our thing together and do it. In, in terms of moving beyond them, what role does government play in that process in terms of not necessarily opening the same space to the same actors. I, I think what you should be looking at, what fascinates me is whether you can create coalitions that are business plus, that, as I indicated. The anti-corruption <laughs> coalition was plus. The climate change coalition is absolutely plus. How do you convince the unions to want to work with business and not, and not sort of have the normal Northern Ireland blood feud? Um, you know, how can you uh, uh, get the environmental groups to do it? So I, I think, you know, to me, Having and, and that's going to be better for legislation. It's going to be better for the durability of whatever passes if you've got a broad coalition to get it done. That's why the civil rights laws of the 60s, which were an incredible coalition of companies and, 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 and actors in the society, have really stood the test of time. I mean, no one's messing around with the Civil Rights Act of 64. They're sort of trying to screw around with, six, with the Voting Rights Act, but, you know, that's it. Let me leave you with one last thought. I've been reading uh, Grant by uh, 
Um, turn off, thank you. And uh, you will all be interested to know how the, the term lobby came into being. President Grant, when he was president, liked to take walks. And one of the places he would walk was to the Willard Hotel, which is, you know, 500 yards from the White House. And he would hang around the lobby smoking his cigar. And so everybody would come and try to influence him. Hence the word lobbyist. <laughs> so I'm going to leave you with nothing else. <laughs>